good to have you guys with us this morning. If you're wondering what the giant jacuzzi is doing in the front of the auditorium, uh, we will uh, be participating in a couple of baptisms a little later in the service. So uh, if this is your first week, you came on a good one. should be a lot of fun, a lot of celebrating, a lot of cheering and clapping to come uh, this morning. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, we, we have an opportunity to continue on in this series that we have been working through for the past few weeks. If it is your first time, rest assured, I'll give you a little bit of a breakdown, a recap of where we've come from in the last few weeks and how we got here this morning. Uh, we've been working through an Advent series. And if the word Advent makes no sense to you because you didn't grow up in the church or maybe you grew up in a, a less liturgical setting than others, the word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming or arrival. So the season of Advent is, Advent is meant to focus our attention on the coming of Jesus into the world, the arrival of Jesus, the celebration of his first coming, and the hopeful anticipation of his second coming. It's really, if you could summarize it, it's the constant reminder in the midst of all the busyness and distractions that come into our lives this time of year that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that he, he's better than all the toys, He's better than all the trinkets. He's better than, than all the tinsel, all that stuff combined. He's the greatest gift that we've ever been given. That at great cost to himself, God has made a way for our reconciliation, for our redemption. Christmas is the celebration, doctrinally speaking, of the miracle of the second person of the Godhead clothing himself in flesh. If you're a Christian and that hasn't mesmerized you at some point in recent history, you haven't thought about it long enough. You should wake up and go, I really believe that. I believe that God clothed himself in flesh to enter into the, the very story that he's authoring in order to redeem me to himself. It's crazy. And yet, it's something that even because I couldn't possibly have dreamed up on my own is an apologetic argument for the fact that it's actually true. It's what theologians refer to as the doctrine of the incarnation from the Latin word meaning becoming flesh. Said this from week one, the most exalted being and all the universe entered into the slums of human history by way of the feeding troughs of Bethlehem. The one who created everything in the beginning had to be taught how to spell the very things that he had created. He had to be taught his own name. The one who carved out mountains and valleys in the beginning of creation had to be taught how to work with wood as a carpenter. When we declare that phrase, Emmanuel, God with us, what we're declaring is that the God of Christianity is not a God who's removed from the story that he's authoring. Rather, he's a God who is willing to enter into that very story as a character in order to bring us hope, in order to redeem us, in order to bring some light into the darkness. Just to recap this series, if this is your first time, we began this series in the Garden of Eden, the, the first place that we actually see God make a promise to send a hero to come rescue his people from their sin, a future baby in a manger, you might say. The light entering into the darkness of this world by way of the humble trappings of a smelly stable, surrounded by blue-collar field workers and pagan astrologers and court magicians. I've said it from week one of this series, God's way of saying, I'm not here for those who think they have it together. I'm here for those who are well aware that they don't. Jesus came to give hope to the hopeless. That baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger would go on to sign the check for our ransom with his own blood. That baby resting in a feeding trough in Bethlehem would go on to deliver the death blow to the darkened dragons of Satan, sin, and death. In week two, we talked about the fact that 
the, the Christmas story is about so much more than our rescue. Jesus didn't come just to redeem us, to save us from sin's penalty, but also sin's power. Yes, Jesus came to ransom a people for himself, but he also came to make us clean. Our refinement, our sanctification, our growing in holiness as Christians is part of the rescue mission. It's actually part of the wonder of Christmas that God didn't just have in mind that he would convert us and then leave us all to our own devices. Rather, he lovingly is committed to melting away all of the impurities in us so that our hearts might actually be happy in him. Last week, we talked about a topic that gets a lot of press around Christmas time. This idea of joy proclaimed. We talked about the fact that the church, we have a song to sing. A song of worship with our very lives. A song that flows forth more readily as we tune our hearts to the song that God actually sings over us. That God, if you're a Christian, God loves you. He loves his people. He delights in his people. He's not upset that you're on his team. He's not bummed about that. He sings loudly over you. Not because you've impressed him, but because Jesus has impressed him on your behalf. That's the gospel. Part of the wonder of Christmas is that Jesus came to put a song in the mouth of God. A song of delight over his beloved. A song that that we see on full display in that very feeding trough in Bethlehem. If this is your first exposure to this series, I'd encourage you to go online and listen to the the messages leading up to this Sunday. and, And see what God might stir in your heart. As you prepare to celebrate Christmas this year. This morning we're going to spend a little bit of time in the scriptures talking about this idea of peace. Something that we long for. Especially in the midst of the craziness that ensues this time of year for many of us. In the midst of a world ridden with anxiety. In the midst of a a room filled with anxious hearts. My guess is that some of you brought that into this space this morning. I believe that God has something sweet to say to, to all of us this morning. With respect to this topic of peace. And so if you have a Bible. You can open up to Micah chapter 5. That's where we'll be this morning. Could say open up to Micah chapter 5. Or maybe just open up to the table of contents. That might be more helpful. right? You might actually get there before we leave this place this morning. Um, One of the smaller books in the Old Testament. Toward the end as you start to come upon the New Testament. It's where we'll be this morning. Part of this passage you've probably heard before around Christmas time, and some of the rest of it, maybe you haven't. Let's pray, and we'll jump in, and we'll get to work. God, I just want to lift up to you all of those in this room who have come in with anxiety in their hearts, with this sense that something between you and them is unreconciled, perhaps with the sense that there is a feeling of relational estrangement between us and and even other human beings that we bring into this room this morning. God, I pray that the gospel would come alive for us this morning, that we would see the beauty of the reconciliation that comes by way of the cross of Jesus Christ, that we would see the beauty of what it means to walk and pursue new levels of peace and reconciliation with you, God, as Christians and that we would see the horizontal implications that the gospel has for our very lives with other human beings in the world as we know it. Holy Spirit, would you work in our hearts to bring reconciliation where it's lacking, to bring peace, uh, to replace the anxiety. We love you. We lift these things up in the name of Jesus, our rescuer. Amen. All right, so we've talked about this for the past couple of weeks. Uh, we, we really do believe that context is important around here. We don't just 
take Bible verses and haphazardly slap them onto the sides of coffee mugs and bumper stickers without giving some sort of idea in mind as to, to where those verses come from. What, what's going on around those verses? That every word in Scripture is written in the context of a sentence. Every sentence is written in the context of a paragraph. Every paragraph in the context of a chapter and so forth and so on. And so... Again, similar to the last couple of weeks, if we're going to dive into a passage found in the book of Micah, it would probably be helpful to know at least a couple of things about this book of the Bible. Last week, we talked about the fact that the Old Testament includes two exiles. And so you have the exile of the northern kingdom after Solomon's reign. They were taken away to Assyria around 722 B.C., About a century and a half later, the southern kingdom was exiled to Babylon. That included Daniel and his friends. If you were around for the Daniel series, uh, perhaps you know a little something of that story of God's people in exile. Micah's prophecy, what we're going to look at this morning, takes place around the time of that first exile of the people in the northern kingdom. But the interesting thing about the book of Micah is that Micah is actually speaking to people in both the north and the south. They've recently, all of them, experienced a season of prosperity, and unfortunately, it's led to a great deal of corruption, not gratitude to God. And so, as with many of the prophetic books of the Bible, you have included an oracle, a declaration of judgment, and a declaration of salvation. Going back to last week, um, God's people are not living lives that reflect that, that their hearts and their ears are tuned to the, the song that God is singing over them. And in light of their covenant unfaithfulness, they're going to experience judgment. But God also declares in this book of the Bible that he will preserve a remnant, that he will gather a people for himself by his grace to be part of his redemptive story. And so as we pick up the story in chapter 5, we look in on this promise of God to bring about peace and restoration. Look at verse 1. It says this, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. So chapter 5 begins with this declaration of of distress, you might say. God's people are under siege. Things are not going according to plan. Going back to week 1 of this series, God's people are between the time of the promise that God makes in the garden to send his hero and the coming of that actual hero to rescue his people. They're constantly looking for the reality that all those Old Testament shadows are pointing toward. The one who will slay the dragon and pave the way back to Eden, the way back to God. So this is a time of great anxiety for God's people. Again, if that's you, maybe you can relate to them in this passage. Verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Okay, here's here's your Christmas verse for the morning. This verse has Christmas written all over it. How so, you might say? Well, If you fast forward to Matthew chapter 2, the account of Jesus' birth, here's what we find. It's up on the screen. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So The wise men are wondering where to find this newborn Messiah. This is a part of the Christmas story that many of us are familiar with, especially if you grew up in the church. Verses 3 and 4 of Matthew 2 go on to say this. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. 
And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So Herod's looking for the answer to the same question that the wise men are looking for an answer to. Where where is the birthplace of this promised Messiah that people are talking about? And notice who Herod assembles in order to get an answer to this question. It's the chief priests and the scribes of the people. In other words, it's the Jewish Bible nerds. It's the guys who took their seminary course in the book of Micah. And and what do they say? Look look at what these Old Testament scholars declare in response to Herod's question. Verses 5 and 6, moving on in Matthew 2. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the Jewish Bible nerds of Jesus' day saw Micah chapter 5 as referencing the coming Messiah, this hero that was promised in a garden so long ago, that Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem in order for Micah chapter 5 to come to its fulfillment as a prophetic word, which makes it all the more amazing that Mary and Joseph, who found themselves in Nazareth during the time of Mary's pregnancy, had to go to Bethlehem because of the decree that went out from Caesar Augustus right before Jesus was born. Luke chapter 2, that story of the decree that went out from Caesar Augustus has massive implications. It's a booming declaration that Micah chapter 5, the passage that we're in this morning, is actually true. Coming back to verse 2 of this morning's passage. I love verse 2. Not only because it's proof that God's promises always come true but also because it's a resounding declaration of the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. God's redemptive historical drama is not about human merit, but about God's mercy. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says this, beginning in verse 26. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That God chooses lowly Bethlehem to be the birthplace of the Savior. I've always thought that he landed the DeLorean in the wrong place. Right? If I were, if I were writing this story, it'd be in a Roman Colosseum, filled to capacity, sell-out crowd, and all of a sudden there's Jesus, boom, and he's born. And not in some lowly manger, but in the, the king bed of all king beds, the Cadillac of king beds, right? But that's not what we see here. We see God declaring in verse 2, yet again, I'm not here for those of a certain pedigree. John Piper says it this way. He says, God chose a stable so no innkeeper could boast. He chose the comfort of my inn. God chose a manger so that no woodworker could boast. He chose the craftsmanship of my bed. He chose Bethlehem so no one could boast. The greatness of our city constrained the divine choice. And he chose you and me freely and unconditionally to stop the mouth of all human boasting. In other words, 
Verse 2 is God's way of communicating the immeasurable riches of his grace. The same words spoken to Bethlehem are spoken to you and I. I didn't choose you because you're impressive. God's rescue mission, the Christmas story, is not about human merit. It's not based on religious ancestral pedigree. It's not based on intrinsic lovability. It's not based on moral fiber. God's not making a list and checking it twice. There's not a a human naughty list and a human nice list. He knows that Jesus is the only one who gets the word nice stamped on his resume. We all get naughty stamps. That's the message of the gospel. Even those of us who stuck to our Bible reading plan all through 2016. That's you. Maybe you're going, man, 13 more days and I'm there. And that's awesome. That's something to celebrate. But guess what? Even if you get there, God loves you just the same as he loved you when you started that plan. He loves you perfectly in Christ. That's the beauty of the gospel. God's rescue mission is not about being nice enough. It's not about impressing some divine elf on the shelf. God's rescue mission is all about unmerited favor towards sinners. It's all about his lavish grace toward those of us who, like Bethlehem, are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Maybe you feel that way this morning. If you come in this morning and you go, man, you don't, you don't have a clue of the mess that I've made in my life. God couldn't possibly love me. Please hear me this morning. Hear Micah chapter 5 this morning. It's time to stop looking at yourself and your resume. It's time to start looking at and trusting in Jesus and his resume on your behalf. God delights in those who will declare, Jesus is my righteousness. Jesus is my hope. So much so, going back to last week, that he cannot contain his singing over you. This doesn't even come close to scratching the surface of verse 2. I feel like we're going to have to come back to it some other Sunday because there's so many riches in that verse. But for the sake of our time this morning, onward we march. Verse 3. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. In other words, God's people are going to encounter some really hard times, both in exile and post-exile. It's going to seem as though there's no resolution in sight. In fact, we know that when the Old Testament history concludes, that things go dark for about 400 years. No prophet of God speaks on behalf of God for about 400 years years between your Old and your New Testament. But then all of a sudden, after 400 years of darkness, a light shines in. A light enters that very darkness. She who is in the midst of labor pains in the feeding troughs of not-so-impressive Bethlehem will give birth to the hope of humanity. Merry Christmas, church. And we're talking about a hope for both Jew and Gentile alike, for everyone In this room, the second half of verse 3 declares hope to the people of Israel. The second half of verse 4 declares hope for the nations. He shall be great to the ends of the earth. I love this quote from Tim Keller that summarizes the idea of verses 3 and 4. He says this, In Jesus Christ, prostitute and king, male and female, Jew and Gentile, one race and another race, moral and immoral, all sit down as equals, equally sinful and lost, equally accepted and loved. Again, it's not about pedigree. It's about God's lavish grace. That's the story of Christmas. It's a grace not just for Israel, but for you and for me this morning. What are some of the benefits of that grace, you might ask? 
Well, look at the first part of verse 4. It says this, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. You have this this sheep shepherd imagery in verse 4. It reminds me of Mark chapter 6, the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. We're told that he went ashore and saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That word compassion in Mark chapter 6 cannot be reduced to simply Jesus having pity on a crowd of people as he looks out on a hillside. That word compassion is from the Greek word splonknizomai, big word, which simply means the inward parts, the vital organs, the entrails. It's a literal gut-wrenching emotion that when Jesus is described as a shepherd on a hillside in Mark chapter 6, what that means is that something wells up within Jesus in the deepest recesses of his, his being. You, you can't separate the baby in the manger from the shepherd on, on the hillside. They're not meant to be divorced from one another. The, the light entering into the darkness was moved with compassion for us because he saw us like sheep without a shepherd. And he carried that compassion all the way to a Roman splintered wooden cross. That's how much he loves you. But the shepherd was led like a sheep to the slaughter. Isaiah 53 tells us that he cares for you deeply. Does God so love the world? Yes. Yes and amen. But it's also true that God so loves you. And that's something that I don't know that we sit with often enough. This reality that the gospel is personal. The message of Christmas is personal. He had you on his mind. Jesus entered into the slums of human history to be your Shepherd, to go to that Roman splintered wooden cross for you. John chapter 10 and verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus was born to die. When you see the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, you're meant to see on full display a God so filled with love and compassion for you that he would take on a killable body to sign the check for your ransom in his blood. Again, there's so much more that we could say about verse 4. But week 4 of the Advent season is all about this idea of peace. So I want to spend just a few minutes in the first part of verse 5, which simply says this. And he, this coming Savior, he shall be their peace. We sing it every Christmas. Hark the herald, angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. Or how about this one? Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is what? Is peace. We sing these songs every year. What do you make of verse 5? And he shall be their peace. If you're a Christian, that's you. He shall be your peace. When we think about Jesus, our peace, one thing that we're not meant to think of is this idea of a life free from difficulties. It's not as though you become a Christian and then all of a sudden all the hard stuff goes away. That's not the biblical idea of peace. Peace in the Bible actually has to do with the ending of war, the ending of enmity, the ending of hostility. Why do you think King Herod wanted to know where the Messiah was to be born? Going back to Matthew chapter 2. Think about it. If you see yourself as king and someone else shows up on the scene declaring kingship, what does that mean? It means there's a threat to your throne, right? And the reality is that there's a King Herod in all of us, which explains the, dec- the degree to which we'll make sacrifices for the sake of building our own little kingdoms along the way. We want to be in control 
of our lives. We don't like the idea of God coming in and dethroning us. That's what the Bible means when it talks about this idea of peacemaking in the midst of, of hostility. Here's how it sounds for the King Herod, <clears throat> King Herod in the, the irreligious heart. The King Herod in the irreligious heart declares, I decide my own truth and meaning in this world apart from God. I called the shots. But there's also a King Herod in the religious heart that declares, I trust in my own ability to obey God and be accepted by him. And thus I can put God in my debt and control him as a result, which means that I'm really seated on the throne when all is said and done. You see how it works? This King Herod that, that wells up within us, both the religious and the irreligious alike. And either way, if you think about it, it's a, it's a miserable, anxiety-ridden way to live. That when, when we gaze upon the baby lying in a manger in Bethlehem, we're meant to see that part of God's rescue mission is to actually free us from hostility toward him and to create some happy endings amongst one another. Colossians chapter 1 says it this way. Paul says, For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. If, if you're a Christian, I've said this before and I'll say it again. When you became a Christian, here's what happened. The Holy Spirit busted down the walls of your kingdom, headed for the castle, made a beeline for the throne, and promptly executed you so that Jesus could take his rightful place as king in your life. And that's good news. That's part of the fulfillment of Micah chapter 5. And he shall be our peace. Jesus, your peace. He has freed us from the empty chase of self-exaltation and the building of kingdoms that can't stand. He's freed us from the impossible mission of self-rescue. You don't have to try to claw your way back to God anymore. He's come down to save us from ourselves and our sin. And now, for the rest of your life, Jesus is committed, if you're a Christian, to helping you experience new levels of peace, new levels of reconciliation, both with God and with other people. Sounds kind of magical, doesn't it? Especially this time of year. Greater peace with God compelling us to experience peace and goodwill toward others. One of my favorite uh, movie scenes around Christmas time is the scene of the old man and Kevin sitting in a pew in a tabernacle in Home Alone. If you haven't seen Home Alone, shame on you. That should be your first act of repentance as you leave this place. But to summarize, uh, you have this, this little eight-year-old boy sitting with this, this old man in a tabernacle, and the old man tells Little Kevin, you know, I'm here to listen to my granddaughter sing in the choir. I can't come later on tonight for the Christmas Eve service because I'm not welcome here. And Kevin's like, what do you mean not welcome in a church? And the old man says, well, you're always welcome in a church. But my son doesn't want me around. We have an estranged relationship. So I have to come and listen to my granddaughter sing at the practice version of the Christmas Eve service. And Kevin nudges him to seek reconciliation um, you know, push, push into that. You should call your son. And the old man says, I'm afraid. And Kevin says, well, aren't you a little too old to be afraid? And the old man says, well, you're too old for a lot of things. You're never too old to be afraid. You know, and there are a lot of good one-liners in that scene. But, but as they leave, Kevin encourages them, maybe you should take a risk. Just see what happens. And the next we see of that little side story narrative is at the end of the movie, as Kevin looks out the window and sees the old man embracing his granddaughter in the front yard uh, of, of their home. 
and the son is there as well. And, and we're meant to see this beautiful picture of reconciliation that takes place in the midst of this man's story. You know what you don't see in Home Alone? You don't see the scene that involves the old man picking up the phone to call his estranged son. You don't get that one. Why do you think that is? I mean, my guess is because it was probably quite difficult and quite messy. Right? There were things that had to be relationally worked through in order to bring about the heartwarming scene at the end of that movie. And it doesn't always come in a blink. Can I share a little secret with you? And I don't think it's a secret because practically everyone in this room has experienced it. Peace rarely, rarely comes easily. I mean, let's, let's not treat this idea that we're talking about in verse 5 as some hallmark movie virtue, as if all it takes to experience a little peace is some Christmas magic or some winter pixie dust sprinkled over our stories and our relationships and, and the way uh, we view God. I mean, think about how you became a Christian again, going back to Colossians chapter 1. If you're a Christian, your first taste of peace with God came through bloodshed. That's the gospel. The shedding of Jesus' blood has established peace between man and God. As the prophet Isaiah says, upon Jesus was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. The same thing could be said of the sanctifying work of God in our lives if you are a Christian. These, these new experiences of peace with God usually don't come easy, do they? they? They usually come by our being cut to the heart by the Spirit of God. They usually involve an ugly, ugly cry, right? There's, there's this declaration of a residual King Herod within us that wants to continue to control our lives. There's this declaration of sin. There's confession. There's this turning in repentance that that happens we're not talking about something that would make its way into a hallmark movie scene at all are we our moments of confession and repentance can oftentimes look ugly from the outside but we know that on the other side of those moments is sweet peace experienced with God at new levels that maybe we've never experienced before I mean think of it this way What's the means by which a body filled with cancerous cells can experience healing? The answer oftentimes is the pain of a surgeon's knife, isn't it? I mean, there's no ending of the enmity between the good cells and the bad cells without bloodshed. Again, it points us back to the beauty and reality of the gospel. How did Jesus make peace? By the blood of his cross. Make no mistake, we, we talked about this in week two, the refining fire of God's love. God loves you too much to leave the scalpel on the surgeon's table. He loves you too much to, to allow the residual King Herod to reign in your heart. But on the other side of every spiritual incision, you might say, is a newfound peace. And the same could be said of our relationships with one another. Peace and reconciliation doesn't come easily. Again, the old man had to pick up the phone and make that call. And it, it may not have been one phone call. It might have been multiple phone calls. It might have involved some yelling before there was some reconciling. We just don't know. We do know that human relationships are incredibly messy. And there, there's oftentimes not this linear progression of the storyline. It's usually all over the map. It, it, it oftentimes involves our confessing of our sin to other people. Who likes to do that? 
mean, who's leaving here giddy about the thought of that, that maybe being an act of, of repentance? Sometimes it means pursuing others in their sin, even when there's no light at the end of the tunnel in terms of the idea that they may actually turn from their sin. Peace doesn't come easy. It costs Jesus his life. But there's something beautiful in the tapestry of the world as we know it that recognizes the beauty of pursuing peace. Is there not? I mean, there's a reason that we tear up at the end of of home alone. If you don't, like the Grinch, your heart might be full of unwashed socks, by the way. Like you... You're meant to feel something internally as you, as you look in on that scene. It's part of the wonder of Christmas. That Jesus took on a killable body in order to put to death not only the hostility between us and God, but the hostility between us and others. So that the door might be open for some happy endings on a human level. Wouldn't you love to experience that this Christmas? As you think about what the irreconciled elements of life look like for you, both between you and God and, and you and others. As we close this morning, as we look down on the baby lying in a manger in Bethlehem, I invite you to celebrate God's mission of making peace with you by the blood of his cross. That's one element that we can celebrate and think about as we prepare to take communion. Let's spend some time, some of us may be having an ugly cry over the residual King Herod in our hearts so that we can experience a deeper level of peace with God. Maybe for some of us, it's wrestling with the difficult question of how he might be calling us to make peace with others, like the old man in that movie, to pick up a phone and see what might happen, even if it's painful. In a moment, we'll take communion. We do so here by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. If you're a Christian, this meal is for you. And I do, I invite you as you prepare to receive of the elements to to sit with those questions, to, to ask God, where, where is the, the residual King Herod within me? What, what's the part of me that doesn't like the idea of you taking over a little bit more of the kingdom of my life? To, to celebrate the beauty that, that Jesus came, not for those who think they have it all together, but for lowly Bethlehem, for those who will declare that they don't have it all together, for those who, who will declare that they've come to the end of themselves and they deeply need a a hope outside of themselves and if that's you if you're here this morning you're not a christian i invite you to stop looking in the mirror and to start looking at the cross thanks for listening if you have any questions about this message visit us at crosspointptc.com there you can contact us find further resources and directions to our gatherings that's c-r-o-s-s P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.